Lord, as the song said, I ask that you would give us faith to trust you and to know the greatness of your love. Today, as we look at your word, we're going to see an example of generosity and a promise of your provision. I'm going to pray that you would take these truths and plant them deep in our hearts that we might bear fruit that is pleasing to you. It is never enough that we simply fill our minds, but that we move our hands, that we move our feet, that we be actively pursuing what you have for us to do in this world. That we would use everything available to us in every aspect of life, every opportunity that we see you grant to us to bring people to Christ and to walk closer together with you. Thank you this morning for the book of Philippians and what it's meant in my own heart, my own life, what it means for the history of your church. And we pray that you would speak to us as we take one last look at it before we um, journey into the season of Lent and spend time in the Psalms and um, take a break in Philemon next week and moving on to Judges and 1 John and then the Gospel of John, Lord. Your word is a treasure trove of wonderful truth and wonderful power, Lord. We anticipate what you have for us today with joy, expectation, and awe before you. In Jesus' name, amen. So Philippians 4, starting at verse 13, 14, pardon me. Philippians 4, 14. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia... No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. So you see in your bulletin a little outline, four sections that we'll break this passage down into. We'll see fellowship through faithful and overflowing generosity, verses 14 through 16, 17 through 18. Generosity is building credit and pleasing God. 19 through 20, sacrificial generosity met with God's abounding generosity. And then verse 21 through 23, unity in generosity, in the generosity, pardon me, of Christ. So we've reached the end of Philippians. And I wonder what Paul, what the Holy Spirit has shown you specifically from this book. Perhaps it's a life of joy in Christ, a call to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ by counting all that we would have gained apart from him as loss. Perhaps it's a passionate plea to make gospel proclamation a real priority in your life. Maybe it was an exhortation to agree and walk in fellowship with another in the Lord. 
Maybe it was a need for imitating Christ-like examples. Maybe, and perhaps most importantly, to gaze at a Savior who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Rather, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All these things and more of what Philippians contains are provided to us by the sacrifice of the Savior for the joy of the church and for the glory of his Father. And now, if we are in Christ, our Father as well. We have in Christ the true picture of generosity and these great riches of truth that we found in Philippians. And today, we'll see how that generosity is meant to be alive and active and impacting and powerful and life-transforming in his people. So look at verses 14 through 16 with me again. Just as we read last week, Paul is grateful for the kindness that was shown by the Philippians in their gift to him. You'll remember in verse 10 that he spoke of their generosity as blooming once the opportunity for them to display their partnership with him had finally come. He then went on a path to describe his lack of need when things are going well and when things are going poorly. The secret of this contentment being the strength provided in Christ from moment to moment, situation to situation. Paul rejoices in the work of Christ in the Philippians as he described their gift as kind, as unique among other churches he had been a part of, and faithful beyond expectations or necessity. All this being the fruit of the Holy Spirit working in his people. We're going to talk about generosity. Don't think of generosity as a cold, lifeless duty of a Christian. But my prayer is that today, through what we'll see of the Philippian church, and particularly what God had wrought in them, that generosity is an overflow of gratitude and joy over what Christ has done on their behalf and for us as well. So let's look at the first characteristic here in verse 14. He said it was kind of them to share in his trouble. Kindness is a necessary ingredient in true Christian generosity. Can you imagine calling someone generous who is not also kind? It would be kind of impossible. That was really generous of you, you jerk. doesn't make any sense. Christ's sacrificial offering of his life for hours at the cross flowed from the great abundance of divine kindness in his heart. For those who had been, in fact, rebels against him, against his father, and are guilty of the crucifixion itself, you and me. This word here in verse 14 for kind is um, the Greek word kalos, which means well or right or honorable. So kindness is not meant to be something we extend to someone based on how we see them deserve it or how we're feeling on a particular day. Christian kindness is motivated not by situations, not by emotional responses, but the true foundation of kindness in the gospel is in that it is right for us to be kind. It is right for us to care for others according to our supply and our means. 
we find as we are being transformed from one degree of Christ-likeness to the next, a mandate to live in kindness towards others, not based on how we feel or how we're treated, but based on how Christ felt and how Christ was treated and how he treated others. Remember, it was Jesus who said, the Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve. It was his mission. It superseded any other kind of inclination or temptation that he may have faced. Remember, Jesus was sinless. He never once gave in to temptation. But we do have a high priest in Jesus who was tempted in every way like we are, yet overcame that temptation in every moment. And that service that the Messiah did didn't require a kind response in order to be effective. Neither do we only show kindness to those whom we deem worthy of such kindness, but any to whom the Savior calls us to be kind. Remember the second great commandment, love your neighbor. In what way? As yourself. And I always put in as much as you love yourself into that because that's what he means. We care for ourselves. We take care of our needs. And Christ would call us, as he did, to care for others with the same kind of love. Paul tells them that it was kind of them to share in his troubles. And here again is the theme of fellowship or partnership in verse 14. That idea of sharing, to, to be a partner with me in what's going on. And what is going on with Paul? Where is he? For one last time in this book, we'll ask the easy question that Paul was in prison. He was imprisoned. He was a, 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 he was a prisoner because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For his preaching, they put him in prison to try to stop him. So just as we saw in chapter 1, verse 5, he thanks God for their partnership in the gospel. And this then makes for a good bookend to the letter in one sense of how he expresses his view of the Philippian church in the beginning and in the end, there's a consistency there. Paul rejoiced in prayer over their partnership in the gospel, and here we see a mirror of that sentiment as he considers their kindness. Their kindness stirred his heart with joy over what the Savior had accomplished in them. Remember again in chapter 1 that we saw Paul rejoicing that he who began a good work in the Philippian church would bring it to completion in the day of Christ. And we ask the question, and I'll ask you again today, does seeing others grow in Christ create joy in your heart? Because it is a great mark of the work of God in your own when you see the work of God in others. And when you rejoice in that, when you long for it, when you celebrate it, when you cheer for it, when you work towards it, when you, yeah, all those things. <sighs> Their kindness stirred his heart with joy over what the Savior had accomplished in them. Secondly, this, this, this generosity of the Philippian church is unique. Paul was one who, as we saw last week, relied on Christ for all things. I can do all things. I can face all circumstances, whether things are going well or things are going poorly. I can do all these things through Christ who strengthens me. And so we see last week, we see this week two times that he, he sort of says, look, I don't need anything from you. I'm well provided for. So in his wisdom, his, his perspective of his own idea of ministry and of life and taking care of his own needs, he worked faithfully in a leatherworking trade throughout all of his missionary journeys. His goal was to be able to provide for himself in the event that those he was ministering to were unable to provide 
The church at Corinth, for instance, even for all of its riches and its ease of being able to provide for Paul, he chose not to take provision from them. It was one he specifically wanted to take no money from, but rather he was actually supported by the churches of Macedonia, including the Philippian church. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 2 through 5, he says this, In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. He's talking about the Philippians and other churches in Macedonia. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. It's remarkable that these churches were actually begging to give financially in order to minister to the needs of the saints. Shouldn't the begging go the other way? Isn't that what we would expect? Don't we almost expect when we open up a, Paul, a letter from Paul when he's in prison to hear something like, hey, can you make sure and send me some food or some money or some, some kind of resource? Well, no, it, it goes the other way because it is, in fact, more blessed to give than to receive. So what is it about this gospel-fueled generosity that creates such a zeal in giving over receiving? Could it be that their zeal for gospel proclamation outweighed any sense of their own physical need, outweighed any kind of control that physical need, material needs might have had on their minds or their lives? Could it be that they saw the great joy of storing up treasure in heaven in their earnestness to overflow in generosity and give beyond even their means dictated? Christian generosity is marked by a unique behavior of giving. One that is confounded by the world around them. I'm sorry, one that confounds the world around them because Christ has brought the weight of his kingdom to bear in the hearts of his people. And that weight poured out in everyday practices of normal life. Even when Paul was in Thessalonica, where he apparently would have been learning the abundant side of contentment, the Philippians longed to still provide for him. This gospel-fueled generosity created such joy in their hearts that they simply couldn't stop giving and providing for Paul. There was no reason at all for them to send support to Paul at Thessalonica, but they did it anyway. If you think back to Exodus chapter 36, verses 3 through 7, there's a rare moment of generosity and worship in the life of the Israelites, of God's Old Testament people, um, in their desert wandering. God had given instruction for the tabernacle, and the Israelites were called to make some contribution to the building of it, but they apparently could not stop giving. Listen to what it says in Exodus 36, verse 3 through 7. They received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work of the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning, so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came each from the task that he was doing and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command and word was proclaimed throughout the camp. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution to the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. It's kind of a funny passage to be looking at as we're thinking about buying the building and I, I didn't do that on purpose, I promise. 
But it's just interesting because for a moment, the Israelites were actually responding rightly to all that God had done for them and taking them out of Egypt, out of slavery, crossing the Red Sea, and bringing them with hope into a new land. I mean, this generation didn't get to go, but there was this promise that God would give them a place that they would be a nation. And they couldn't stop worshiping through giving. So much so, Moses had to just simply say, that's enough. The Philippian gift had likewise extended beyond what may have been considered sufficient and exploded out of a joy for what Christ had done for them and what they wanted to see happen for others as well. A mark of the born-again believer, then, is a radical change in understanding that nothing is truly our ownership, but rather a stewardship from the Lord. It's not a head-hanging low, dutiful spending of 10% of your paycheck. It's a kind, unique, and faithful beyond expectation overflow of a heart grateful for what Christ has done at the cross. Here, then, is a passage that was read earlier from the New Te- that gives kind of the New Testament standard of giving, which Paul again instructed to those Corinthians who just simply didn't get this concept. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctant, reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a, does anybody know it? Cheerful giver. The whole idea of grabbing onto joy and giving is to look past the gift itself as it either benefits or takes from you and letting that gift be an opportunity to express great joy in Christ. God has nothing that he needs from you. There is no, the need is, as we said last week with Paul, as far as um, facing need, um, A.W. Tozer wrote that need is a creature word. It doesn't apply to God. And so as we give, we're giving to a God who ultimately has said, I've given you these resources to glorify me with. And we'll talk about that in a second. But I want to stop for a second and, and point out the fact that in Christian ministry and as a church, we have no need to fear a, a, a minimum resource or a loss of resources or anything like that because the God that we worship owns everything. And when we give to a church or a church organization or a Christian organization or we give to somebody on the street who seems to need something, we're giving out of the abundance of the riches of Christ that he has provided for us. Our hearts, though, do not on their own function with this kind of anticipating of joy. Apart from Christ, our time, our talents, our treasures, our resources turned inward and generally thought for our own self-benefit. When we embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are penniless before God without a hope to repay the debt our sin had created, we see that Christ has become for us an impossible transaction on our behalf. Martin Luther called it the great exchange. Christ's righteousness given for our unrighteousness. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. And in those whom that has truly occurred, there is nothing he cannot ask of them because there is nothing that they have that is not already truly his. Tim Keller shares a conversation in his book, Prodigal God, where he's speaking with a new believer who expressed that they were actually at one point realizing they were kind of afraid of this concept of unmerited grace, that idea that when God extends salvation to us, and rather when he saves us, when he makes us his, he does it not based on anything that we've done or earned, but only on what Christ has earned at the cross. It is unmerited, it is grace, it is getting a good thing we don't deserve. 
And this person that was talking to Tim Keller said, uh, this is kind of scary. So Keller writes, I asked her what was so scary about unmerited free grace. She replied something like this. If I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty, and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if it is really true that I am a sinner saved by sheer grace at God's infinite cost, then there's nothing he cannot ask of me. Our hearts grow in new affection for Christ when we see him for who he is, when we see the cost that he paid on our behalf. And generosity just makes sense after that. We find joy in giving from a desire to obey and please God, and generosity is meant to abound in his people from that. I hope you can already tell this is not a sermon about tithing or dropping something in the offering box on your way out. Because I can tell you, and I think I speak for the elders, and I think I speak for just the, the tone of the family here at Crosspoint, that we are not afraid of running out of resources. Because we worship a God who will provide everything that we need for life and godliness and for everything that he has for us. But I hope that what is coming out here of Paul's exhortation to us to be generous is, is even in one sense a, a seeking of our own joy by giving away the things that otherwise would keep us captive. In some cases. 17 and 18 of chapter 4. Here again, as he did in verse 11, Paul hits the brakes and explains that the gift is not what he is seeking from them. It's kind of funny how he puts this if you look again at 17. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. He's just putting this preface in here yet again so that they don't think that Paul is just saying, hey, you did really well sending me this gift. Please, do, please keep doing that. I could use more of this. Rather, he's looking for a fruit. If it were the end of his perspective to simply say that he just needed, needed support, he would say, Epaphroditus, I need you to take this back and tell them to knock it off. I have plenty. I'm done. But he sees that that fruit increases and builds for the Philippians as they give spiritual credit. Whenever we act out of gospel, act, pardon me, when we act out gospel ministry through giving to another, we are in actuality giving to the Lord. And that's what he says here, verses 17 and 18. I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, which is a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to whom at the end of verse 18? To God. God is the one who's receiving this. Jesus taught us this truth in Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. Here Jesus is talking about the end of the age and the separation of the sheep and the goats, symbolically showing those who are God's people and those who are not. To the sheep, those who are truly his, he tells them that when he was in need, they ministered to him. And they don't understand. They say, Lord, when did we see you in need? Jesus will respond, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it for me. Likewise, those who did not meet the needs of the saints when they had opportunity are told to depart because they did not serve the king when he was in need. Christ identifies with the needs of his people. And when we provide for each other and we provide for others, he sees that as providing for himself. We give ultimately to God. 
the generosity of Christ is to be duplicated in our generosity to others because the core of giving is not simply in meeting temporary needs in and of themselves, but meeting those temporary needs is an expression of gratitude to the Son of God who purchased us with his own blood. To the God, to God the Father who did not withhold his own Son. How are we instructed to give to a God who has no need of anything from us? By giving to others and giving cheerfully. We must not give out of apathetic duty or responsibility because God has no need and no joy in such an action. He loves a cheerful giver. Lord, do what you will with what is truly yours anyway should be our mindset in giving. So let's look at these two metaphors. Paul uses two metaphors to describe the Philippians' act of giving. First, he speaks of the fruit of their new life in Christ increasing to their credit. And this is obviously a financial reference, alluding to the idea of opening and investing in a savings account or investing in a business and receiving interest for that initial investment. Again, you may hear an echo to Jesus' parable of the talents, which is a worthy homework assignment for meditation this afternoon. Suffice to say for now that the grace of God that reached and transformed our lives in Christ is meant to bear fruit and increase in our own and in the lives of others. God does not turn a blind eye to cheerful giving, nor does he receive it with arms folded and an it's about time attitude. The Lord takes note of the giving actions of his church. Releasing our time, talent, and treasure never results in regret for the Christian. Even though much of the time we may not see the immediate benefit to others, we are given a confidence that the Lord is faithful and will not despise, quote, even a cup of cold water given in the name of Christ, as we see in Matthew 10. Moving into Paul's second illustration of their giving, he breaks again to mention that he himself is well taken care of. The nature of the gift's impact here is very interesting. As a prisoner, Paul should be very concerned for his well-being by earthly standards, but he isn't. On top of his contentment, which we learned about in chapter 4, 10 through 13, the Lord has blessed him with a greater display of the fruit of his ministry. Not in the way the gift serves him, but what it says of the Philippians whom he cares so much for and long to continue ministering to so much, wanting them to know Christ more. Here then is his beautiful language expressing a spiritual reality of their giving. It's not a normal metaphor. This is the reality of what happens when we give, when we act out of generosity with our time, our talents, and our treasure. It's not a matter of their providing for Paul, but at the heart of it lies a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Listen to it one more time. Having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. We must strive to please God rather than ourselves or other people. The Philippians did it. Their act of worship was acceptable as it flowed out of a heart so impressed and changed by the love of Christ that the giving was not a matter of question but almost as a sort of instinctive reaction. Is your worship or your giving or service pleasing to God? What does God love? cheerful giver. Where does that joy come from? Where does that cheer come from? Psalm 1611 says, in the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. You do not need to, and nor can you, in fact, manufacture cheerful giving, cheerful generosity. 
There's nothing Christ calls you to bring to the table but yourself. If sacrificial and joyful generosity is not a hallmark of your life in Christ, the solution is not to get out your debit card right now and do something about it, but to spend time with your Savior. David prayed in Psalm 51:12, "Restore unto me the joy of your salvation." It may take you considering again the riches of what you've been granted in Christ and allowing the Holy Spirit to let that joy overflow and create in you a heart of generosity. Verses 19 and 20 now. Just as Paul was well supplied, he states that the Philippians will likewise see that God will supply every need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Such a great comfort in, in light of this. It was enough in one sense that Paul just simply said, look, this is your generosity, your giving is a fragrant offering to God. It's pleasing in his sight. But on top of that now, he gives an assurance that in our generosity, God will provide all that we need in his riches and glory. We are in Christ, and we have therefore then submitted to him. We acknowledge that those riches are not to subject to our own whims, or even perhaps in some cases what we see as our legitimate needs. Last week I mentioned that our culture blurs the line between actual and perceived needs, such that there seems to be little to no distinction between the two. When that perspective becomes our own, we may find ourselves asking God for certain things according to his riches in Christ and then losing faith because he does not give according to our expectation. But he does answer. God is not unaware or dispassionate towards his children's true needs. He offers salvation and the entire foundation of our relationship with him is on grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, so that it will be to his glory alone. So why would he want you to impoverish yourself and thereby have some leg of your own to stand on before him. Christian generosity is not found in only separating ourselves entirely from every resource of time, talent, and treasure, but in opening our eyes to see that we own nothing but are stewards of all that he has given us. All we have is all we have because he has said that it should be so. When all we have seems not enough, we look to him to provide for all of our needs those which he defines for each one of us. How does he define those needs? Often they're based on the task that he has chosen for us. Paul learned the secret of contentment by facing abundance and by facing need. The Lord provided according to the current mission he was on. We must be ready to trust in his gracious supply wherever we find ourselves today that we may be at the work of what he has for us today. This last phrase in chapter 4, verse 20 to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Is a sort of crescendo, not only to this section, but to the entire letter. All that Paul has written, all that he's exhorted to us, all that he's explained, all that he's exemplified, finds its fulfillment in the glory of God, finds its end goal, its purpose in the glory of God. And then here we come to verses 21 through 23. He ends his letter in a usual kind of fashion with greetings to and from other saints. He shows a piece of the fruit of the ministry he had while imprisoned, though. Even some of the household of Caesar have actually come to believe in Christ. Through the generosity of the Philippians, God had expanded the household of faith to even include some of the household of Caesar. There was now unity and fellowship in one of the least likely places in their minds. 
don't underestimate an opportunity to walk in generosity. It is an unusual thing to see in the world around us and a powerful tool in the hand of the believer who is seeking to glorify Christ with all that he is and all that he has. The one who walks the gospel-worthy life, following the humble Savior, always learning, faithful in fellowship, resting in the peace of God, is the one who says, to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Therefore, in generosity, rejoice and continue to grow in the joy of the Savior by releasing yourself from from any kind of resource and as thinking that it's your own, but rather recognizing that it is God's gift to you to use to serve others.